Denise Beck here with an introduction to this month's Legacy Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us for the first podcast of 2024. A friend of mine living cross-culturally got in contact with me to say how much these stories have meant to her. How in a season of feeling really low, she hit play on Legacy Podcast after Legacy Podcast, and the Lord met her in meaningful ways through the lives of these women who lived big lives in obscure ways for eternal legacies. It's one of our greatest joys to allow God to use the content created here to meet you in your brightest and darkest moments. And as long as we're doing that, we're going to strive to still be in this space with you. But this month, we continue to bring you powerful stories of women who have gone before us. And in just a minute, Sarah Hilkeman and Dr. Laura Chevalier-Beer will be interviewing a special guest to give you a true insider's view into the life of a truly remarkable woman, Lilius Trotter. For those who aren't familiar with the story, let me set you up a bit. Lilius was born in 1853 in London, England, and was said to have been such a gifted artist that if she had dedicated herself to art, she could have been the greatest living painter. Listen in to hear how this gifted artist decided to spend her gifts and passions in North Africa for 40 years of her life until her death in 1928. Are you intrigued? Well, I won't keep you any longer. Be blessed by the story of Lilius Trotter. Hey everyone, welcome to the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast. I'm Sarah Hilkman, and you guys, we have something so special in store for you today. I'm here with Dr. Laura Chevalier-Beer. Laura, can you get us started? What do we have for everyone today? Yeah, so this month, um, everyone, we're going to be talking about Lilius Trotter. And she's not someone that I had researched previously. Um, As you might have heard in our previous podcast, a lot of the women that I've highlighted are people that I've done previous research on. And so when I was starting to dig into the story of Lilius, I found that there were a tremendous amount of resources available online. And then I started discovering that there was one person in particular who was responsible for a lot of this, and that was... Lilius Trotter's biographer, Miriam Rockness. And so today I'm really pleased to introduce you to Miriam Rockness. She's joining us on the podcast and she's going to tell us the story of Lilius as we interact with her. So I'm very excited for you to be with us, um, Miriam. And I wonder if you could just tell our audience a little bit about how you became interested in Lilius and what your research process was and how you, you know, learn more about her life. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you uh, today. And the whole um, story of, of Lilius in terms of my involvement is quite a remarkable one as far as I'm concerned because I did not seek her out. I was introduced to her by way of a friend of my husband's. And he his, his parents were missionaries in China. And two women came to our church that he was a pastor of recognized the name Rockness, and wondered if by any chance he was related to Grady Rockness. And Grady Rockness happened to be his mother, who had died when he was just 18 or 19 years old. So it's not a normal conversation. It turns out that their sister had been nurtured by his mother on the field. She was actually working as a teacher of English as a second language. So based on that connection... We had lunch together, and that's where I first heard the name Lilius Trotter. And the women were very animated, and it seemed to come down to the fact that they were 
clearing out their library. They're ready to downsize. And they were left with this legacy of books by and about Lilius. And they were so concerned about turning it over to their church library. They were afraid it would end up in the bottom shelf and who knows where it goes from there. And other than just being quite taken by the story they told of this woman with this great artistic talent and this remarkable friendship with John Ruskin, who was the art arbiter of Victorian England. And uh, it was a fascinating story. Never expected to hear anything more about it. Past six months or so, and through the mail, because they were just wintering in Florida, I began to get, I, I received my first package of Lily's Trotter materials. And the first was a little leaflet called Focus. And it was the story that inspired the hymn that we all know as Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And then there was a little cameo biography. And um, in my own mind, I picture it as leather gold gilt. I've gone back to it lately and it's just, it's not like that at all. It just was so beautiful <laughs> in, in terms of how it struck me. And that began um, a correspondence over maybe two years where several months apart, a new mailing would come in. And I just fell in love with Lilius. And what attracted me so much to her was in a time and in a culture and even a church culture that had bought into what I consider the world's standards of success, fame and numbers and um, notoriety, whatever word you want to use. Here was a person who gave up an opportunity for fame and all these things because of a God-driven love for um, serving God, as it turns out, in, in North Africa. That's further down the line. But my interest in Lilius at that point was purely pilgrimage. She was speaking deeply to my heart. My husband being a minister at that time, all the magazines were talking about how to develop a mega church. And here we are in the midst of the groves, uh, citrus groves yeah. in central Florida. And she was just speaking into my heart about faithfulness, trusting God, leaning on him for direction. And it was just, um, I have no other words to say that like a, just a long drink of cold water. Uh, it was refreshing. Mm. So it was, it was much more of a personal journey. You weren't like a professional researcher or anything. No, not at all. Now, I will say this. Um, I had done some writing, but my writing was in relation to home and family. And it was also personal um, essay. It wasn't how-tos. It was sort of, you know, maybe today it would have been a blog. But at that point, mm -hmm. it was just personal essays as I'm working through questions that I faced as I'm a young mom. So there were three books. The first book was published by Doubleday and the next two by Zondervan. The first was on childhood and um, motherhood. The second book was on childhood and creativity. And the third was what does a home mean to five people going in five different directions. So I was not looking for a project. I was a minister's wife and I was just being ministered to. This was my own little private journey. And so it probably would have just remained my own little private journey if it weren't for some things that happened, which looking back, I can only say were God directed and God given. So um, what happens after I read what I go on this journey for about two years, I get a book, beautiful 
beautiful book, Between the Desert and the Sea, filled with her watercolors of Algeria. And with a note, this is it. This is our last book. And I was almost like, oh, you know, it's over. But I realized that there were more books out there. So that became a quest. Now, we're talking mid-'80s, 1980s. And so for me, at least, it was before search engine. It was before online email. This is snail mail and it's telephone calls trying to find out the other books that she had written that I didn't have. So again, I think that's probably where the journey would have ended, except 20 years into our time in in Lake Wales, the church sent us as a gift um, to the Holy Land. And we routed, by this time I found out that the, the archives for Lilius, this is where research does come in, the archives for Lilius were housed in Loughborough, England, at the Arab World Ministry International Headquarters. And so we asked the church if we could route ourselves on the way home back through England, and uh, we arranged to see some of her paintings and journals. And that was, I can't even tell you what it was like for me, as they brought out these cardboard boxes that had actually been in a shed outside their home, three Mm -hmm. big cardboard boxes. And therein were these journals with paintings. There were, they, they showed me a few diaries. They didn't show me everything. We were only there a few hours. And so, I mean, I just cannot tell you how she spoke to me through her words and then through her aesthetics. And to open a journal that was from like, let's say 1895. I mean, she was just painting. She had no idea that anyone would be looking at these as a possibility for publishing a mm-hmm. hundred years later. It was, it was just an amazing experience. So the question was asked of me by the persons in charge. It was not said as crudely as this, but I will say it crudely. What's in it for you? You know, why are you here? What do you want? Mm-hmm. And here's an American woman, you know, in, invading their territory. And um, it was just a three-story house. And, and I, I said, pilgrimage. It is just pilgrimage. This woman has touched me so deeply, and we're here and, and just wanted to take advantage of this opportunity. But when I got home, I began to think, if it's touched me this much, surely there are people who would be interested and blessed by her as well. But the big question I had was, and I, I love to read. I read, I, I, thought I, I thought I had read just about everything that was kind of marketable at that point, and, and some of the devotional classics. But I thought, if she's as good as I think she is, why has nobody heard of her? I mean, you know, I mean, it could be my judgment. Uh, but the most encouraging thing was, I noticed in the introduction to the book, Parables of the Cross, it was dedicated to an AC and a BAB. And I got to thinking, could AC be Amy Carmichael, mm. who many people have heard of? So I knew that Elizabeth Elliot had written a biography on Amy Carmichael. And I'm not a person that's going to reach out to people I don't know, but I just emboldened myself to ask. And I got a letter in the return mail saying, I'm so glad to know there's another Lilius Trotter fan. 
and that that was Amy Carmichael. They'd never met, but they supported each other. And so I felt like if somebody of the likes of Elizabeth Elliot, if it passed her high, her, her gold standard, she probably passed the test. So really, um, one of the things she said was that she had tried with failure to get a publisher to publish um, the um, uh, Parables of the Cross. The three-color printing at that time was too expensive. So my only ambition in relation to Lilius was to see if I could get a publisher to publish, republish Parables of the Cross. So I write back to the same wonderful man who ended up being a companion in this whole journey, Alistair McLaren at Arable Ministries. I said, uh, if, if I would, I have your blessing if I got a, a publisher for Parables of the Cross. So that's, that's, the, that's the story up to this point, just loving Lilius. That is amazing. Miriam, thank you for sharing that. I want to get into the life and story of Lilius. Um, as you think about her whole life, what would you say is kind of the, the most defining decision of her life? Well, I would say second only to her inviting Jesus into her life mm. would be the life-altering decision about the role of art in her life. Uh, she had become acquainted and a friend of John Ruskin, and he was the voice of art in the Victorian age. And he saw great potential in her. And he would visit her at her home. And she and her a guardian or a chaperone would come up to the Lake District. And he'd critique her art. And he put her to the test. At the, uh, she was involved in local ministry in London. Uh, she was working with the YWCA, which is a fledgling ministry at that time, with women off the street prostitutes, bringing them back into a Welbeck Institute for, for food and clothing and, and employable, respectable employable skills. And at the same time, she was pursuing the art thing. And Ruskin said to her, and rightly, you have, I, I, if you turn your life over to art, I will put my life behind it. And I could make you England's greatest living artist. Now, would that have happened? We don't know, but that's what he dangled in front of her. And she realized that he was correct. Anyone, whether they're going to run for the Olympics or be a musician at a top level, to, to achieve the kind of level of excellence he was talking about, it has to be, your life has to be devoted to it. But at the same time, she was so involved in ministry in London, she had really believed she would give the rest of her life loving London, and she knew she had to make a decision. And at this point, I'm very careful to say, I don't think this is the decision and the choice she made is what everyone has to make. That's a good point. Right. Yeah, another person could, God could use that very gift exclusively for his purposes. But that's why she wrestled. She knew that it would open doors for her. Uh, and yet she came to the decision, not about art, she never gave up art, but about the role of art in her life. And she knew that she couldn't serve Jesus in the way she wholeheartedly, undividedly, and at the same time pursue art the way that John Ruskin. That was not an easy decision, but it was a unique one in that it was a once and for all decision. Now, at this point, I'd like to clarify 
many people who read her story quickly assume she made the decision and went off to North Africa. She didn't. It was another decade before she, the missions, foreign missions even resonated with her. So anyway, at this point, she made that decision. She continued her relationship with Ruskin. She continued to paint, but she was undivided in the uh, energy she poured into the ministry in London with women of questionable background and, and work, but also the businesswomen. She just had children. She just had an amazing ministry in London. She started the first public restaurant for women. Uh, women who work used to have to eat their lunches on the sidewalk and bag lunches. So whatever Lily has put her mind to, she did with excellence. And I would also add the word bril brilliance, really. She was a remarkable person. And about how old was she when she was making this big decision? The decision, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to say that she, she was maybe around 26. She, okay. she went to um, North Africa when she was 35. So it was probably about that period of time. So it was her early 20s. And, and, bef and, I, and I, I'm sure these are questions that you, you will get into later on in terms of what she was doing during that 10 years and, and some of the influences. But, but that gives you kind of a time frame. Yeah. We'd love to hear a little bit more about her background and so, sort of like who, who um, she was uh, growing up. If you'd be able to tell us a bit about her childhood, where she lived, where her family was like, and like the areas that she excelled in, just to give us um, some background on who she became later. I think she had what we would call an idyllic childhood. She was born to a wealthy family, the West End of England, lived across the street from Regent's Park. She had all of the advantages of uh, culture in terms of what London had to offer, travel, personal governesses. Hers was a blended family. Uh, her, her mother was the second uh, wife of her father, whose wife had died, and so there was already a family. And so Lilius and her sister and brother were the, of the um, second family. But uh, they blended well, especially with the sisters. The, the sons were older. But um, you could just say that it was almost a charmed childhood. Something happened, and when she was 11, her father became very, very ill, and he died when she was 11 or 12 in that time period. And that um, was significant in her life. It really rocked, rocked her. And I would say that, in a sense, that's when her childhood came to an end. It was a matter of time that they moved from this spacious manor house, which doesn't exist. I've walked the streets of, of London trying to locate it, but it's just not there anymore. But to another very exclusive square in, in, in London, in a lovely four-story, five-story townhouse. Uh, but it, it was said about her at that time that there was a, a pensiveness about her and, and, a, and a, a sadness and uh, apparently she loved dolls and she loved to sew for their dolls and she'd be in her room for long periods of time where her family thought she was playing with her dolls and discovered she was on her knees praying. And the sense was that she was coming to understand God in a different way as her loving Heavenly Father who would never desert her. Also, she was coming to recognize pain in other people. And she, be, it, she just seemed to, she probably innately was a sensitive, compassionate person, 
but it became identified at that point in, into her teens that she was unique. She was special. The people would come to her and that she also was very aware of her father's social interests. In this period of time, England hadn't developed the social programs. So it was often the wealthy people that provided the social services. And her father felt very deeply about the poor and providing for them. He visited the United States. He felt very deeply. This was in the 1850, late 50s or early 60s. I forget the exact dates, but very concerned about civil rights, the plight of the, the slave. And so Lilius picked all these things up from her father. And her mother was seemingly of a merry disposition, but there's indication after her husband's death that she experienced depression. Things really changed for her at the age of 12 and, and deepened, deepened in her life. Yeah. Miriam, you've mentioned uh, John Ruskin and the influence that he had in right. Lilius's life. Um, who were some of the other key influences in her life, especially as she got older? Yeah, that's such a good question because she just was living in a unique time of history. I guess every mm -hmm. time is unique, isn't it? But in terms of um, Christianity, uh, this mm -hmm. was a time when uh, Hannah Whittle Smith, if you heard that name, she wrote The Secret of a Happy Christian Life. And they mm -hmm. were having these, she and her husband, Robert Pearsall Smith, were having these at homes in wealthy people's living rooms. And they were sharing Jesus, and people were becoming very interested. And one um, person, who the people who um, owned Broadlands, that's where Queen Elizabeth and Philip honeymoon, invited a hundred people to come for a Deeper Life Conference. And Lilius and her mother were invited. So Lilius would have been very early twenties at that point. And there, that that. Broadlands Convention ended up going to Brighton and Oxford, and it became what we know today as the permanent Keswick, uh, I want to say conferences, convention. So I would say that Deeper Life movement, probably Hannah Whittle-Smith. And, and um, through that movement, didn't she have contact with uh, Amanda Berry Smith? She's someone that we've highlighted on this podcast Yes. So there, there were notables there. There were amazing people that were, but was she a, a black slave person? Yes. Was, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all these things were just going on. Lilius was just warming to this. I mean, it just inspired. Parallel with some of these things was the famous Moody Sankey revivals in London. And Queen Victoria was known to have attended one just out of pure curiosity. And Moody took all these things that were happening the deeper life and he brought it into she learned evangelism through moody she was in the um she sang in the moody sang, she sang in the sankey choir she worked in the after rooms with people who came forward to accept jesus so she was taking this all in but then moody was saying go out now take your faith mm -hmm. and put legs to it so she was involved then in mission work that came out of the Moody, Sankey, Keswick movement. So she was there at such an interesting, unusual time. And she was involved in all of those things. And that's really where she began to set her roots in with the YWCA, which was the fledgling young women, parallel to young YW, 
YMCA. So, um, and she, you know, all these people, Lord Radstock, there are all these celebrities that we, or historically, I would say, well-known people that were just part of her, her life. Uh, and so she was in a rarefied atmosphere. And in an age where wealthy women did volunteer work, she just took it to a different level. I would say those were the main influences in, in terms of, yeah. um, you know, there were individuals that she worked with and, and friends that she developed, but these were huge movements that were going on. Yeah, and it sounds like it was a very exciting time to be a young person, to have oh. to be a part of all these movements that we know of today now that were that have lasting legacies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've mentioned a few um, key moments in Lilius's faith journey already with her father passing and that this big decision that she had to make regarding art. Are there any other key moments that you'd like to highlight just about how her faith um, changed and, and um, deepened over the years and maybe even how that led into her work in um, Algeria? Yes, yes. I would just say in relation to what I've already mentioned, that was slow growth that was just going on in her life as she was becoming a disciple of Christ. But one of the things that concerned her was this was also the time when foreign missions were taking um, off. And you've heard of the Cambridge Seven and uh, these outstanding people, men who had a future, who gave their lives to foreign missions. And it was a huge event. And some of Lilius's colleagues were quite taken up with it. And she was concerned that she did not have a heart for foreign missions. She really felt, she's, all she wanted to ask of God was that he would at least, she was so wrapped up in what she was doing, that at least God would give her a heart for foreign missions. She felt something was deficient in her. So she prayed about that, but it wasn't praying for herself to go into foreign missions. And then she went to a meeting. She says in reflection, that for some reason, she knew not why, whenever there'd be something in the newspaper about North Africa, she'd feel this little kindling of interest. Now, you have probably experienced that over, as I have over many things, where we just suddenly take an interest. That's what she thought it was all about. But then a gentleman by the name of Mr. Glennie came to speak um, at the YWCA at Welbeck Street and at a, a missions meeting there, And he talked about the night before that he had been in Algeria and he was bringing Christ to people who had never, telling about Christ to people who had never heard his name. And he presented to the people there, is there anyone here who feels that God could be calling them to carry out this message? And it was just like that. She stood up and said, he's calling me. You know, I look at Lilia sometimes with a little bit of, I call it godly envy, if there is such a thing. I don't think calling it godly makes it better, but I'm sort of envious of the way she's so decisive. You know, I know people who have spent their whole life, and I'm sort of, I have moments myself where they wonder if I had done this, or should I have done that, or maybe if I had given myself more to this. It's like once she made that decision about the role of art in her life, she had, she, it was, that was it. That was just it. And she understood that not everybody had that experience. And it seemed that it was the same way with missions. Now, I can ask myself, if I were walking with the Lord in the same way she was, would my ears be attuned? 
would I have to go through all the things I go through? I don't know. But the, but the fact is, that's how it seemed to be. That was it. So the first thing she does is she applies to North African missions, gets turned down because of her health. Uh, she had a bad heart. And then um, the next thing she does is she seeks out ways to go independently on her own. And so I think it was almost within a year that she heads off with two friends to Algeria independently. They are all of independent means. They could support themselves. Her father was in railroad. That was a great time to be in railroad stocks. <laughs> he was a stockbroker, but uh, he, he the railroads were just, that was taking off. And um, they head off to a land where they knew nobody, didn't know a word of Arabic, to start out completely on their own. So, I mean, it's it's just amazing, the, the transition there. Yeah. I'm curious if you know anything about the reaction of people around her, what they thought of this decision. It seems kind of rash, like going out independently. I, I know that um, her family and even her mother felt, even before the decision, now her mother, a, a thing that made it easier for her to leave was that her mother had died by that time. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't leaving her mother. She did leave a sister, a half-sister really, who had health issues. But the way she reasoned it was she could visit, um, she could go to Algeria for six months and then she could come back and help take care of her sister. The fact that her sister died the first month she was out there is another whole factor that God knew that she didn't know. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, circling around to 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 help me come back to the question that you asked me. I wandered here. Yeah, it was just key moments of her faith journey and how she ended up in Algeria. So I think you've you've covered yeah. most of that. Well, that's good. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. I think it's just again walking close to the Lord and Him. There's a sense of anointing, I believe, for her in that. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to circle back and oh, I I know what you were asking me. How did her family feel? How did her? Oh, that, yes, that question. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there were many that thought she was wasting her life, and continued mm -hmm. to feel that. And to even go back to fast forward, in and uh, my own research process, which is a later thing, I, I may touch on that very very quickly at some point, because I think I left you with it having no motive other than to find books about Lilius and, and, um, and read them but, uh, and publish that one book. But, but um, we ended up, I ended up visiting her grandnephew, her sister's um, nephew, her sister's, you know, her sister's son. And um, the, now it would be another generation. And they were very generous in showing me things that she did. But I noticed that his wife, although she was very courteous and hospitable, served of his lunch, she seemed removed and remote. And finally she said, okay, I'm just going to have to say it. I'm an art historian. And I look at how all I can see is that she just completely wasted her life. Mm. And she's out there all these years and many people, you know, turned their back on her. And she said, I just, I, I, I just feel like it was such a waste. That was one of those mm -hmm. moments where you just say, Jesus direct me in the next thing I say. And I just mm -hmm. said, I think many people struggle with that. Lilius didn't, right. 
but other people have. But I said, all I know is this, is that anyone who is going to turn their life over to something they believe in will make incredible sacrifices. And um, we call it passion. But when it has to do with faith and their belief about eternity, we call them fanatics. Mm -hmm. And I said, I believe that Lilius, if um, the cameramen like Melker Muggage turned their camera on Mother Teresa, if they had trained their camera on Lilius, she would have been the Mother Teresa of Algeria. And she said, I get it. I get it. But she was measuring her in terms of, again, the world's currency, which is what we are all tempted to do, even those of us who are followers of Jesus. So that was a very good question you asked, and that's why I felt there was something that was I was leaving unanswered. People did struggle with it. Lilius's mother struggled with it from the point of view that she figured that she had given up opportunities for marriage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what man is going to follow her? She was on a different course. So uh, she just, she, to put it in sort of today's language, she was marching to the beat of a different drummer. Yeah, thank you for circling back to that. It's really interesting to see that even several generations removed, we're still kind of wrestling right. with what she, right. that decision had meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another little curious part of all this, way down the road, I don't know if either of you have seen the movie Many Beautiful Things. When that was first first screening of it was um, a private, her family in London was invited to a private screening. So these are all the relatives that they, and people who had been involved in her life, descendants and people. And um, Claire, the same woman that I talked about was there. And many of them did not profess a faith in Jesus, but all of them to a person thanked the, the movie producer for um, redeeming her legacy and sharing it to the world. So they were very proud of her. Mm. Yeah. But that, that took a few centuries. It took a few hundred, a hundred years or more for them to come right. Yeah. Okay, Miriam, it was kind of this dramatic, you know, leaving and leaving a lot behind for Lilius. Can you tell us about her early years in Algeria? What was life like? What was she doing? Um, tell us about how she started off there. Well, let me use her own words to describe her early experience there. She called it knocking heads against stone walls. Mm. First of all, there was a stone wall of language. They didn't know a word of Arabic, and they initially began learning it word by word. Secondly, it was just simply lifestyle. Uh, these are women that were wealthy. Lilius was accustomed to being awakened in the morning by a servant who would bring her a cup of tea. And now these, <laughs> and now they're, I, I call it playing house. They're trying to set up housekeeping in the most adverse conditions. The weather was very, very difficult. Um, the culture was not an easy culture. And there was also, it was a culture of, um, of suspicion. She had to first win their trust in their hearts, but there was political opposition Algeria was a French colony at that time, and they were at odds with England. So that brought a whole level of opposition. And of course, faith brought a whole level of opposition. These are Christian women uh, in an Islamic culture, which is not just 
faith. It is the complete culture. It's the educational system, the government. It's, I mean, you, you, you're born into a, a very tightly locked system. So how to over, how to make a bridge into their lives was a great challenge. Her real goal was to get into the actual uh, living quarters of the Arab people. Initially, they lived in on the coast in the French apartment, but their goal was to find a place in the Kasbah where they could live amongst the people and be part of that life. But those early years were really, really tough. And um, it was such an atmosphere of suspicion. And early on, they discovered that um, the way to the women's heart was through the children. So they made friends with the children with little bonbons and pin cushions to, for them to give their mothers. And then they won their way into their mother's hearts with little cures, little um, ointments for eye difficulties, just making themselves a loving presence, if nothing more, although there was much, much more than that, uh, just listening to their 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 stri- trials and struggles and issues with husbands and their husbands' extra wives. And, and so really it was um, overcoming a language barrier, a culture barrier, a faith barrier, and then winning their ways in their, um, I guess you, this phrase has been used, I think, with Young Life, earning the, the right to be heard. And, um, mm-hmm. but I would call that very much an incarnational ministry at a time when I don't think they use those, that, those expressions necessarily. Right. But it was not easy. And uh, there were many people who couldn't survive the climate. The climate alone was, um, was sapping them. And we talked earlier today, uh, earlier, um, Sarah, about um, today in missions where children and parents and families can mm-hmm. communicate through Skype or Zoom or have right. daily contact through email, even though they weren't across an ocean from, uh, uh, like from the United States to Europe, transportation being what it was in that time, they were really separate. So it was just a challenging thing. And I think Lilius would say the greatest opposition was a spiritual one. Mm-hmm. She really did feel that they're entering this territory, and she did use military terms <laughs> uh, that they were they stirred up, um, they they stirred up the powers of of, um, of Satan in opposition, and um, that's another whole story which would be another whole day. But but that was a huge thing, and she felt if if their spirits could be brought down. Uh, then the victory is already won by the enemy with a capital E. So uh, there, was, there was a lot of difficulty in those early years. Um, it's amazing she survived it. Mm. And did they, were they mostly in the main city there in Al- Algeria? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, initially, they had this huge home right in the Kasbah after they found, after the first year or two when they were in French quarters. But all during those years in the French quarters, they were still starting Bible classes and talking to children. They would make regular trips into the Kasva. So that was their base. That became their headquarters. But their mission was evangelistic. They were, first of all, in an environment where they could not start a school. They could not start a hospital. Uh, They couldn't root, as many missions do. And that suited their purposes perfectly because they felt that they were called 
to spread the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper inland, deeper into the desert south, and then also to penetrate the east and west coasts. So their whole strategy, and this is Lilius's strategy, was to broaden their bases. She said, if there's too many people sitting around the table, something's wrong. So they would scout out Lilius and Blanche and then a new worker who was the longtime Miss um, Freeman. Uh, they would do these little expositions where they would scout out areas deeper into communities where there was some receptivity. And then they would try to find a native home to rent. I use the word, she used the word native. We don't use that anymore, but a national home. And, um, and then plant a base and then they would work from that base. And the whole idea was never to become the end in itself, but the next step to another location. So when she died, uh, there were um, 15 bases that had been established and 30 missionaries, or they called them workers, that came alongside them at that time. So that was the, the idea. Um, although there were a lot of classes going on, there were a lot of things she was doing strategically in Algiers. That was there. At some point along the way, they found a home in the suburbs, LBR. And eventually that became, that was Blanche's home. And it became a place where missionaries could come and get some clear air and rest. And uh, it became also a place where she would have summer camps for, for Arab children and uh, became a real active base for conferences and all. But uh, and eventually it became their headquarters, but it was still Algiers. Algeria was the main main center of their work. Yeah, and we sort of described this already in to a certain degree, but we're, how did the ministry continue to change and grow over the years? You've kind of described the spread. Is there anything else that shifted? Yeah, as- I mean, that's just such a good question because it was, I would say the word to describe it was organic. Yes, she was strategic. In fact, she was an amazing combination of being a pioneer, a leader, strategic, um, and on the other hand, being almost mystical in terms of her Christianity and deeply sensitive and poetic. And, you know, rarely do you find those extremes in one person. And I think all of her life was the challenge of keeping them in balance. But um, she was just ever evolving programs and uh, and ministries to meet the needs and of the particular situation. So it wasn't like I come into this place with an agenda. I come into this place with, with the gospel. And as I get to know the people, then we begin to figure out the best way to reach them. And so there was, in terms of how she dealt with the people in Algiers who were very much Orthodox Islam, it was very set it was very important for her to distinguish for them that it wasn't just Jesus and Muhammad, great prophets. Mm-hmm. There was a distinction. But later on in her ministry, she became very involved with the Sufi mystic brotherhood. And she had quite a different approach with them. They were poets. They were artists. They, uh, they were thinkers. She felt they really responded to the approach of the Gospel of John. And it was for the Sufi mystics that she wrote what many people consider her classic word, work, the, the Way of the Sevenfold Secret. And um, we've just put this book out, we being Lilius Trotter Legacy. 
And um, it is just a amazing book in which she explores the Christian life through Jesus' seven I am's and parallels them with the seven secrets that Islam was looking for. It's just an amazing book for the people she designed it for, but for also Christians um, and seekers today alike. Um, it, it is quite remarkable how she developed her methods and her ideas to meet the needs of that moment and, and with the resources they had. So as they gathered more people, they had more programs, they had more, uh, could broaden their ministries, but they, um, it was always working with individuals, not building schools or hospitals. Yeah, so for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, Sufi, the Sufi kind of division of um, Islam, could you explain that a little bit more for them? Well, I'm certainly not an expert on it, but Lilius found in this brotherhood a true seeking for God. And that was what resonated with her spirit. And they found something in Lilius that was unique. They invited her into their actual fraternity homes. And remarkable, because first of all, she was a European. She, um, she was a woman. And yet they found her seeking after truth so resonated with them. She really felt that of all the Islamic believers, this particular group, of people in this particular geographic location were the ones that were most likely to be open to the gospel. And particularly they resonated with the book of John and they followed that thinking. Uh, as far as what Sufism is today and what it's evolved into, I, I'm just not an expert on that at all. I just simply know that when she was deeper into the Southlands, she found three locations, one in Tozier, one in Tolga, and another place, and that was where she felt God, had, that was this triangle that she felt God had given them for this dialogue. And, um, and, and actually she saw leaders being um, developed, leadership that then would become the people who would bring um, uh, the word of God to the, to, the, to the Southlands. So, you know, in its extremes, we've heard of the the, um, the dervishes, the dances where they go into states mm -hmm. of ecstasy, and there were the extremes of Sufism. But this particular group, these people were laymen, basically. They had jobs. There were even women that were um, in, in, in community. Miriam, you have called Lilius kind of this pioneer um, in a lot of ways. Were there any particular... Um, innovative approaches or, or, you know, innovations that she brought to the work um, there in Algeria? That's such a good question. Um, missiologists, I don't know if you've heard of Christy Wilson, but uh, he said that she was a hundred years ahead of her times in mm -hmm. her missiology, in her approach. Mm -hmm. And I think the, mm -hmm. your, the expression you would use, and I think I would use is in terms of cross-cultural. And now what I want to be careful in saying here is, Things that she developed then are almost just taken for granted today. So if I were to mention, you'd say, oh, yeah, we, we do that. Been there, done that. But they were groundbreaking in her era. But I also want to say, I am sure that there are other people like Lilius in other parts of the world. They were doing the same thing. 
that were breaking ground because what they were doing was building bridges. They were, they were not coming and imposing their culture on a people. They were coming to learn the people, to understand the people, and in understanding them, build the bridge with which they could through which they could communicate. So many of the, I, I jotted down some things here just because there actually are so, so many. She was sensitive to the Eastern aesthetic their beauty, their of beauty, their love of color. And she used native settings mm. or national settings and names of people, people and culture. She didn't want the Jims and Bobs of England to people her stories. She wanted um, Muhammad and, and Amar and names that they were familiar with and settings that they were familiar with. So this, this kind of sensitivity in the literature she developed, story parables, and some of them were knowing how much they love color, she find ways to do a two-color leaflet. She introduced what was then novel, short-term workers. So she would go to these Keswick conventions, meet young women that were eager and interested and bring them there for tasks that they could do. Some of them became full-term um, workers, but that wasn't, that wasn't a ploy for that. The word that I'm going to use here is not necessarily a word that she would have used, is incarnational, in that she lived among the people as soon as she could in the Caspa, but she longed to live her life in simplicity um, amongst the people in the Southlands. And uh, she actually dreamed of ending her life in the South, in the simplest of dwellings. But at the same time, she was strategic and, and, and had a vision of she got involved in Bible translation in regional dialects instead of just the formal Arabic language, which was actually above the head of many of them. The ultimate example, of course, being Sevenfold Secret that she wrote for the Sufis. But she also recognized that isolation that many people would have if they left their faith of Islam to be Christians. And so she began to implement methods for financial independence. And we see that today with the women, uh, the handiwork of a culture that is being sold to help. But for them, it was to gain financial independence if their husbands mm -hmm. rejected them. Or she began um, an industrial, industrial farm that could be self-supporting. The families could be self-supporting. And then she was also aware, I mean, she was helping them work towards financial independence. But she also supported these young Christian families through all manners of methods that evolved toward that end, uh, summer camps, housing for Christian families. I call them safe houses. And even did her fair share of matchmaking so that <laughs> Christian young men and women would have the support of a, um, a spouse. And she envisioned one of her great dreams was a fraternity house like the Southern, the Southland Sufis had, but it would be where European and national Christians could live together and learn from the strength of the others. In fact, she kept a brick in a drawer that was going to be the first brick for that fraternity house. So she was always thinking ahead. Um, native cafes for men where they could come and drink their coffee and that it'd be an environment where men would come and share the gospel with them. I could just go on and on and on. Mm. But basically, it was a matter of trying this, and if it didn't work, trying that. And I think that's just the heart of 
not just missions, just relationships. I think we experience that even as we reach out to people in our own lives that uh, have not accepted Jesus into their lives, how to effectively communicate the gospel or the truth as we understand it without compromising that truth, but, but crossing whatever those, those barriers are. So I just, I'm one of my favorite stories is she had planned a early on a tea for women and none of the women showed up. So she went out in the streets and gathered little shoeshine boys and water boys. And that became her first Bible class for boys. I mean, it's, it's, if this doesn't work, you try that. And she, uh, the word that Samuel's Waymer, who was considered the prophet to the, um, to Islam used for Lilius was indiscourageable. Mm. She was indiscourageable. <laughs> Well, Miriam, you've just shared so much about Lilius with us today and um, how she impacted you personally and uh, mm-hmm. much of the work that she she did uh, both um, back in the UK and also in Algeria. I mean, this is probably hard to do for someone who's been immersed so much in her, but would you be able to kind of give us a summary of her legacy as you see it for our listeners? I think that the work that she did um, in Algeria is very hard to measure. They kept very careful records from all the stations. So we are aware of programs and ministries. We're also aware of many individuals who came to know Jesus personally. However, her great goal was for a church visible, and that didn't happen. And so I would say that in terms of her, um, her, her immediate, her legacy in many ways was planting the seeds mm-hmm. that prepared uh, that prepared the wrong for what is today a church in Algeria. Um, also, there are missionaries that go there that said they've never experienced ever anything like what they experienced in Algeria, and it was like a ground prepared. Mm-hmm. And while I don't say it was just Lilius, but those people who um, were indiscourageable and faithful in planting the seas, and the seas being scripture, I mean, she believed that um, we... Uh, Get to, we know, we communicate and learn um, through God's word and through his world um, as he reveals himself through his created order. And then, of course, through his, his Holy Spirit. But I would say um, if the great legacy that she left would be under the umbrella of love, mm. love and prayer. Now, you could say that her legacy went underground for almost a hundred years. But I feel that there's no accident, no coincidence, I believe it's divinely appointed that her legacy is now being restored through the books that are being published about her, the books that are being reissued that she wrote. I believe that she has a special message today for young people who um, are looking for authenticity and then for older people who are looking for meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that her legacy lives on and God has chosen to, um, you, to use the words and the paintings and even the example of her life now a hundred years later. And so, you know, the, um, the privilege of being able to be a collaborator with God's purposes for Lilius, the only thing I can say is from the leap for me to have gone from just being a pilgrim to God using 
me to um, help restore her legacy is something that is could only be done by God. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel that anything that has happened in, in the legacy that's come together and what we're trying to do through restoring her works and her legacy, um, every single thing that we've done has been God-initiated. And uh, it's just kind of like, it's just the privilege for myself and the other women who've come together on this little legacy board. We, we call ourselves that. We almost have to smile because as boards go, we're so very, very simple. But we all have the same sense of what a privilege it is to be able to uh, introduce Lilius today to people through ways and means that wouldn't have even been available 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, since she was mm-hmm. such a visual person, to be able to put online or on Facebook these paintings, um, you know, Lilius, I think, would be absolutely shocked to see these pictures <laughs> that were displayed in her diary or in her sketchbook when she was on a camel in the Southlands. So I have no doubt that um, anything that we've been able to do has been has been instigated by God for for his purposes to use her legacy today. Mm-hmm. Miriam, it has felt like you are introducing us to your dear friend as you have shared about Lilius. It just is amazing how how much she has impacted you and it's obvious how much her story and her life has been an encouragement to you personally, um, which has just been amazing. Thank you for sharing from your heart with us. But as we kind of wrap up here, how do you think Lilius's story can be an encouragement to our listeners to, you know, many of the women who listen to this are on the field right now are serving around the world. Um, And so, yeah, what do you think can be an encouragement to them from Lilius's story? Well, I think one of the first things that can be an encouragement is to, um, have access to her writings. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if either of you are familiar with the book of Blossom in the Desert. And that that is a book, a compilation of her art and quotes that have been taken from her written works and her diaries and journals. And I think just as a devotional book, it's inspirational because it, it captures, it's divided into the three main categories. Her three words were life and love and light of Jesus. And the book is divided into those sections with topics underneath. So I think her words and her images can be a really great um, encouragement to people. And we do have a website just just called liliastrotter.com that if you look at the headings, will lead you into a lot of other articles and and writings by and about Lilius. Um, She's never written a book on her mission methods the closest that it comes to um, that is a paper that was written by a colleague who, and if you look up Lilius Trotter about Lilius and under that missions, you'll see somebody who is able to describe her work. And so I think reading about her and, and uh, somebody has said to me, well, is she your role model? And I said, no, absolutely not. I can't even, I'd be so discouraged if, if, <laughs> If, if she were my role model, I said, but what she is is an inspiration. I can never be Lilius Trotter. I can't even try. There's no, there's, I mean, she's courageous. She's bold. She's all these different things. Um, brilliant. But she can inspire me to try to live fully and completely. 
I think that her life, and if, again, the more you read about her, the more you'll realize that the big word in her life is prayer. Mm. She prayed, she made rooms for prayer for her colleagues. She had prayer letters that would go out uh, to others to pray. So I think uh, you lock her love with the word prayer. And, you know, it doesn't matter when you live and who you are and what you do. Those are, that's, you know, we can often just forget the love part, getting mm -hmm. so caught up in the work part or the program part. And um, I think she's, I just think she's a great inspiration through her writings, yeah. through her paintings and through her life. Well, I don't know about everyone else, but I imagine many of you are, your interest has been piqued and you're, you're wondering where do I get access to these writings and this, her art today. And um, Miriam has mentioned it already about the website, but maybe you could reiterate for our listeners again, where, where they can find um, Lilius today, where they, where, where they can access her work. On the website are resources that you can look up and it can tell you where you can order these books online, Amazon. But there are also several repositories. Um, Wheaton College has a special collection and they have um, uh, over 200, close to 300 paintings and sketches of Lilius's that are either in sketchbooks or journals or just in single paintings. And then Arab World Ministries have put on loan there all the diaries of Lilius. And these are just these little, you know, do you know the old fashioned leather bound diaries line a day mm -hmm. or, uh, and they have from 1899 to 1928. What is that? I, I can't do higher math. Uh, what over 30, is that over 30 diaries or, or maybe it's 29. But anyway, you can go to the university of London and, um, into their archives and you can see uh, the, the diaries, you can see journals that have paintings and they have the by far the most comprehensive collection. The paintings that Ruskin used in his Art of England lecture about Lilius are at the Ashmolean Museum. So you can visit there. And then there is in Lancaster University, there's the John Ruskin Library and there's some letters and paintings there for people who really just want to make a journey of it, um, they can have quite a little pilgrimage. <laughs> wow. Miriam, this has been so incredible. Thank you for really taking us on a pilgrimage. Um, and I feel like we just scratched the surface. And so I hope that our listeners will continue to read and learn. Um, about Lilius Trotter. Thank you for all of your work to, like you have said, to bring her um, legacy and to make it um, known by people today. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you for your interest in Lilius. I enjoyed every moment with you. Blessings on your ministry. Thank you. Thank you. Well, friends, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, Hope that you will join us next time for the Velvet Ashes Legacy Podcast.